You seek the key, but first you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system, up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant, with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. netsuite.com slash james. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. If you know for certain the world is ending tomorrow, then basically nothing matters. And that's also different if it's your last day on Earth versus the world is ending. Like, I feel like if today could be my last day, there's going to be a bunch of things that I'm going to do differently, like things that I normally do that I'm probably going to do better. And then there's going to be a bunch of things that I normally do that I'm just not going to do because they, they're, why am I doing them, right? It's, so, it's sort of like related to all those philosophies of when you should say no. So for instance, we probably both do this a lot. I know I definitely do this. Somebody asked me, hey, can you speak at a conference in Bulgaria? And I say, well, when is it? February. No problem. I'll yeah, speak at it. Sure. And then February comes, I won't even return their phone calls anymore. Like, and I won't show up at a conference. And so one philosophy about when you should say no is, is if you pretend it's happening tomorrow, would you say yes or no to it tomorrow? And if, yeah. the, if the answer is no, then you should say no if it's happening in February. Yeah, yeah. They, it's like uh, if you wouldn't say yes in six days, you shouldn't say yes in six months. And I don't have the balls like you do to just sort of ghost after I've agreed. So for me, it's always like... It, it's, it's always no, like, it's all about actually 
fear of a difficult conversation. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Stand Up New York. And welcome to the Choose Yourself 5th Anniversary. You guys ready for a great time? Please put your hands together. The author of Choose Yourself, James Altucher. And Ryan Holiday. I just want to say thank you for everybody who shows up here. The other thing I want to say is I had a little cold earlier and I got a little nervous that I would run out of energy. So have you ever, have any of you ever used the IV doctor? Nobody? Yes, for the... Uh, yes. <laughs> so I called the IV doctor. If you haven't used this, I'm not, they're not paying me to say this. It's just a great thing. Yeah. I called the IV doctor yeah. and they come over and they stick a tube in you and then just you get 10,000% of the recommended, you know, daily allowance of every single vitamin possible. So halfway through, I've got to take the bandage off. To, to, I'm totally like vitamined out. It's like I'm on crack heroin at the same time. So, so I, wanted to do, I wanted to do this podcast. This is a podcast. We're recording it. I wanted to do this with Ryan in particular because five years ago, I wrote Choose Yourself for a lot of reasons, which we'll probably get into. And Ryan Holiday, who had already written a couple of really good books, uh, was helping me with every aspect of publishing this book, including the, the marketing. And, and then when I first launched this podcast, actually, you were the among the many other things you were doing, you were the first producer of this podcast. <laughs> Yeah, I think I think we did the first interview over the phone, and now we're in a comedy club, sitting on these crappy chairs, doing yeah. it. Yeah, so it's, really, it's definitely gone. We're really a long moving way. up in the world. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, that's what happens when when you make it to the big time. They you don't know, give. The, they don't this give. This chair also chair. is falling apart. Yeah. I just want to mention, <laughs> chair is broken, so I'm only participating until this chair falls apart completely. <laughs> so wait, I want to start this off. We're going to start this off. I want to start this off. First off, everybody here, once again, thanks. After this, we're gonna have Q&A. Ryan will stay up here. And then at eight o'clock, there's gonna be an excellent comedy show emceed by me. I will do a set, perhaps, and then there'll be three or four other comedians who are excellent, like world-famous comedians. It's gonna be a great show, but... There's also a dessert, right? I there's, a there's a dessert, dessert. at 9.15. Okay. <laughs> I don't know how that ended up on the flyer. I hope nobody woke up this morning and said, oh my gosh. I've got to go to a stand-up club at 9.15 tonight because they're going to serve dessert. <laughs> That's the wrong reason. Two, two wrong reasons, two bad reasons to go to a comedy club. One is for the dessert. Never do that. And the other is to see people standing up. Like, you could do that anywhere. For some reason, in the phrase stand-up comedy, they decided to focus on stand-up as, like, the critical aspect of this kind of comedy. Really doesn't matter if you're standing up or sitting down. I'm going to let you know that right now. So, but before we, or as we start, this is how we start. We were just in the hallway, and we were interrupted by coming up on the stage. But you were telling, I was, I said, this is an unusual conversation. I said, "How's it going?" And you said, "Well, I just bought a ghost town." Yes, I did. <laughs> so yeah. what? I've never had those two sentences in a row before occur. So, 
what does it mean? You, you, and, and you do lots of interesting things, but I don't know of anybody except maybe Kim Basinger who's bought a town, let alone a ghost town. Yeah, we, we bought this ghost town in uh, right, right outside Los Angeles called Cerro Gordo, which I think means like Fat Hill. But it was one of the most productive silver mines in the United States that was sort of mysteriously abandoned. And uh, it, it went for sale. I think it, I think it uh, went for sale at like a million. And there was sort of a bidding war and we got it for something above that. Uh, we're not totally sure what we're going to do with it yet. But the idea that you could get 300 acres of land in California. With buildings with, on it. With buildings. Uh, you, you also get the mining rights. So, you know, there's like a one in a billion chance that maybe they miss something. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Because... A silver it even mine. comes with a guy. There's just a guy that lives there that you inherit uh, as the owner. Uh, and was uh, he pissed? Like, oh, someone owns me now? No, like, I mean he was there when slavery was legal, and now, now you own him. I think he's lived there like 25 years, and he, like, I think he owns it in his mind. You know, so like you're inheriting him and his and his town. Like, he's like the you, mayor of this town, basically. He's the mayor, the sole citizen, you know, the police force. He's everything. Uh, what if you just turn it into this giant WeWork and make him the janitor? Is he going to be upset? I, yeah, I, I think so. Well, that, that is the weird thing. Having bought it, now there's, this sort, there's sort of these skeptical locals that are like, who are these people? They bought this town. What are they going to do with it? Because the people that owned it before, sort of they'd inherited it and it's sort of been continued to be this ghost town. Um, but it's very strange. I mean, like, there's... Um, they shot some of Iron Man there. Uh, they've shot all these movies there. Uh, there's like a brothel on site, a decrepit brothel, uh, and like photos of the prostitutes that used to, it was like a real, at one point in the late 1800s, there was like a murder a week in this town. 4,500 people lived in it. Uh, and then if you've seen the movie Chinatown, uh, you know, it's about that they steal the water that goes into uh, the making of Los Angeles. So the way it used to work is they would take the silver down from this, these hills that were in our town, and then they would actually go by ferry across this lake to a railroad, and then they would go to L.A. It's, L.A. would not exist without this town, and then L.A. stole the water that supported the town, and then the town became a ghost town, and now we own it, and we're going to turn it into something. It, so how does the town become a ghost town? Basically, everybody moved Basically, out? Basically, everyone moves, and then some sort of real estate speculator or citizen bought up enough of the town that they effectively owned all of it. And then so, because they owned it, it didn't sort of fall into complete disrepair. Like, the main mansion uh, of the most prominent citizen of the town is still there, and now it's going to be like a... Are you going to, like, a, live there? You're going to be like the... I am not going to live there. Uh, no, it's, it's a little bit uh, in the middle of nowhere for me. Uh, the, the guy that lives there, he got snowed in last year for, like, two weeks. So I'm, not, I'm definitely not going to do that, but I was just there last weekend. It was awesome. You can pee wherever you want. You can do whatever... You know, it's cool. <laughs> Well, it's your it's, your it's yours. You can't get You're arrested. You can't get ticketed. Yeah, you can blow you should, stuff up. So, so a couple things. Just because I'm, and we only talked about this one second yes. before we came in here, but I'm like fascinated with the idea of buying an entire town. <laughs> so, so the first thing is, if you told me, oh, your next book is going to be about this town that's the reason why LA exists and it's got this interesting history, I would think to myself, that sounds really boring. Yeah. But if you then, but if you told me. I'm going to write a book because I bought a town and this is what happened and how I bought it and this is the history of the town is like an interwoven into the story of you buying the town. That's a good book. Yeah, I don't know, I don't know if, if I'm going to write about it, but the idea is like, you know, I think, I think 
people can, you can now go and do anything you want anywhere, right? So everything is sort of effectively the same. Like the Ritz-Carlton in New York is the same as the Ritz-Carlton in Austin, which is the same as the Ritz-Carlton in Los Angeles. You, you go to, and so people are looking for experiences. And the idea is we're going to make this some sort of cool experience. Where else can you stay in a town that's, you know, 150 years old, that's I'll got all this where. cool stuff. Westworld. Yeah, that's what this looks like. It's, it's really nuts. You should create like a whole like virtual prostitutes, virtual sheriff. Yeah, I mean, we can do whatever we want. We can do whatever we want. And so it's, that's what we're going to do. So here's a question I have. You said it was an abandoned silver mine. I actually, this is just me being naive. I didn't think there were silver mines. I always thought silver was a byproduct of mining gold. Uh, no, so there's definitely been silver rushes, like there's been gold rushes. So first it was, first they discovered silver there, it was very valuable, and then they discovered uh, um, later, later after the silver sort of dried up, they discovered that there was, it was also valuable zinc mine, so it's like the number one zinc mine. They took, they took something like $17 million out of this mine in the late 1800s, in silver alone, and then also zinc. And then they've since gone back through. They, they weren't super efficient miners at the time. They found more stuff. Um, but it's also just this sort of beautiful wasteland that you wouldn't expect to find in California. So, And, you know, the other question is, you say you, you, there was a bidding war. It was like, who... So, so did you know the other people bidding for this? Like, was this like a hot thing? Yeah, I guess and then, one, one of the bidders wanted was like a big sort of like a pot grower or marijuana entrepreneur. He wanted to turn it into like marijuana town or something uh, like that. Um, and, but we just got, I think a bunch of people you know probably went in with us and bought it. So it was like a bunch of, you know, sort of interesting authors and entrepreneurs. What, why, and, why didn't I get the call? Well, you never respond to my emails anymore, <laughs> but uh, I, I, de I definitely would I don't think would that's have. true. Yeah, I, it's, not, it's not too late, James. There, there's... So my, when I, what my condition was, when first uh, Brent, who you know, Brent Underwood, who works for me, he's always sort of coming up with these like Kramer-esque schemes. Uh, and I would say the vast majority of them are really bad ideas. So when he was like, hey, I found this, th you know, there's this ghost town for sale. We want to buy it. I was like, that is the worst idea that I've ever heard. I, please do not. I, I even Googled, like, there's a listicle, when you Google it, of like dozens of other ghost towns that are for sale and have been for sale for a while. So it's not even totally unique necessarily. Um, but then I went out and then I saw pictures and then I read about the history and I got really excited about it. Um, and it ended up getting a bunch of other cool people involved. But my condition was like, I'll invest in it, uh, but my investment has to allow me to build like a writing cabin anywhere I want on the land. So that's probably what I'm going to do. So, so a bunch of you got together. Yeah. And did you have to put, do you have to, because it's like an auction, did you have to have like a cashier's check for the entire amount, or can you borrow money from the bank? Uh, I mean, yeah, you can't get like you can't call up like Chase and be like, "Hey, I, we need like a home loan on uh, actually like fifteen homes that were built in the eighteen hundreds that are falling down." Uh, so you can't get traditional financing. I, I forget the specifics of how it worked, but I, I don't think we had to come up with all the cash up front, if I recall. All right, well, count me in. Done, so. done, done. You can have it. You can have one your, of us will you, write the book on it. You can have a little retreat there too. Um, so the other thing I wanted to ask you about, uh, I was reading. You have this great email newsletter, the Daily Stoic. You've kind of been responsible for popularizing the philosophy of Stoicism right now, um, which we could talk about. But sure. in, in particular, this one email uh, this morning, I think it was. Uh, everybody always says. Uh, live today like it's your last, which is a really ambiguous line. Like, are you supposed to just like take a lot of drugs and have a lot of sex because it's yeah. your last day, or 
do you be the best person you could be because it's your last day? Like, it sort of doesn't mean anything, that line. And you reword it so it does mean something. And I thought that was really fascinating. I don't know much about comedy, but I feel like we started with real estate and now we're going to death. I don't know if these are the best themes. By the way, real estate and death are the best <laughs> themes for comedy. <laughs> Uh, and I yeah. think we threw in brothels and, <laughs> and virtual prostitutes. So that is true. That this, was this exciting. This all belongs on the stage. That was exciting. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so yeah, there is that idea, like, uh, we say, live it each day like it's your last. Well, the world would fall to pieces if everyone lived that way, right? Everyone would just go join an orgy, and that would be the end of it. Nothing would get accomplished. Um, the, the email was, was sort of about this observation from Seneca, who's my sort of favorite, one of my favorite Stoics, and he was saying... You don't live each day like it's your last. You live each day like it could be your last, which seems like a distinction without a difference, but I don't think it is. Basically, what he's saying is like, you should have your shit together, but you also don't know if it is or isn't your last day. So if, if you know for certain the world is ending tomorrow, then basically nothing matters. But if this could be your last day, then there's a lot of shit that you have to take care of. Do you know what I mean? Like if, if and especially, if it's your last day, that's also different if it's your last day on earth versus the world is ending. If the world is ending, then nothing definitely matters, or definitely nothing matters. Uh, if it's your last day, then you gotta make sure you have a will. You gotta better make sure that you tell all the people that you care about, that you care about them. You wanna make sure you don't waste time. Like, I feel like if today could be my last day, there's gonna be a bunch of things that I'm gonna do differently, like things that I normally do that I'm probably gonna do better, and then there's gonna be a bunch of things that I normally do that I'm just not gonna do because they, they're, why am I doing them, right? It's, so, it's sort of like related to all those philosophies of when you should say no. So for instance, we probably both do this a lot. I know I definitely do this. Somebody asked me, hey, can you speak at a conference in Bulgaria? And I say, well, when is it? February, no problem, I'll yes, speak at it. Sure. And then. February comes, I won't even return their phone calls anymore. Like, and I won't show up at the conference. And so one philosophy about when you should say no is, is pretend it's happening tomorrow. Would you say yes or no to it tomorrow? And if, yeah. the, if the answer is no, then you should say no if it's happening in February. Yeah, yeah. The, it's like uh, if you wouldn't say yes in, in, uh, in six days, you shouldn't say yes in six months. And I, 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 I don't have the, the balls like you do to just sort of ghost after I've agreed. So for me, it's always like... It, it's, it's always no, like... No, it's not. It's all about actually fear of a difficult conversation. Well, so... so, <laughs> so it's, it's but me having the fear of the difficult conversation, I end up going... And then I'm like, why the fuck am I here? This is terrible. They're not even paying me to be here. You know, this is t like, why? And it's almost like the things that I want to do least, not only do inevitably do they tend to pay the worst, but they're also like the biggest pain in the ass. Like the things you really want to do, I always find are pretty painless. There's always, you know what I mean? Like they, they go, well, it's when I have the reservations and I let the person convince me into doing it that I end up, you know, regretting it later. And so, yeah, if today was your last day on earth or if it could potentially be your last day, there's going to be a whole bunch of things that you blow off that you ignore because they don't matter and you're not going to care about those difficult conversations. And then there's other things that you're going to do really well. You're not like, uh, you know, if my wife called me and it could be the last conversation I have with her, I'm not going to be half paying attention while I check my email. I'm going to actually engage and like be there and be present uh, and I'm going to do a better job because it could be the last. Like when I, one of the things the Stoics talk about, and this is sort of dark. They go like, when you kiss your kid goodnight, you should actually think, like, you should actually say to yourself, they're not going to 
be alive in the morning. They're, they're not going to make it through the night. And if you do that, then you're going to be fully present and you're actually going to experience that moment fully and drink it completely in. And then when they do wake up in the morning, because they inevitably almost always do, you're happy. You're, you're like, yes, this is great. Um, and then one morning, unfortunately, you may be right, right? And you're also going to be, the byproduct is that you're somewhat prepared for this tragedy, unlike the people that sort of pretend that no bad thing can ever happen. Right, and I think that's, I think like the main self-help philosophy is this idea that you should always be happy all the time. Yeah. Like, even though happiness is one among hundreds of emotions, that's the only one that's acceptable to experience. And you should do everything you can to just be happy, which is sort of BS. You think that's good or bad? You, I think so it's bad. Bullshit. Yeah, I would agree. Because um, like, like one time someone asked me, um, when, I, when I went through this two and a half year minimalism phase and I threw out everything, a lot of people asked me, um, were, were you happy? Did it feel freeing? And I said, no, often I felt really melancholy and I missed some of the things I threw out. Yeah. And they're like, oh, why weren't, why weren't you happy? Yeah. And you know, it's okay to experience other emotions than happiness. But I feel like particularly here in the US yeah. or in Western society, it's, it's not acceptable to experience anything other than happiness. There's a poet, I forget who it was, but he was saying, you know, you wouldn't expect a single person, you wouldn't, if you saw some person walking down the street, you wouldn't like expect them to be happy. But then we expect every married couple to be happy. And, when it's probably the opposite. Right, right probably. But, 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 so, but, but somehow we just like expect that as we do more things, happiness should, in, should magically go along for that. And that's not really how it works. And yeah, I, th I think happiness being this sort of thing that comes and goes is a much better way to think about it than this like state that you achieve and then have forever. Right. So when we first met, I think we first met 2012. What, trust, we met at the dinner. No, no we met way before this. Uh, so uh, for, um, people, I have for early people who don't know, Alzheimer's, so. yeah, so uh, I was the director of marketing at American Apparel and it was... Uh, already all met most of the warning signs of what ultimately would happen had happened. So I, I was thinking about leaving and becoming a writer, and I read your article on why you should quit your job. And I emailed you, and I said, should I quit my job? And then you said yes, and we talked about it. And I went, and I became a writer, and then we ended up working together like a few years later, um, so, which is very cool for me, and it's sort of funny how things often come full circle like that. Which well, also goes to show... Send random fucking people emails. You send enough of them, they'll answer. And then you, you have this sort of connection. You never know where these things are going to go. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting because I always think about this in the context of, so, so then we actually met face-to-face -face at, at the, your dinner launch for the book, uh, Trust Me, I'm Lying. Yes, yes. Uh, and, then, uh, and then, you know, you started helping me market, uh, choose, we started talking about marketing, the marketing of the book Choose Yourself six months before it published. To your advice, you said you have to start thinking about marketing six months in advance. And I was... Also, also, I remember we had some discussions about what it should be titled because you wanted to title the book The Choose Yourself Economy. Oh, The which Choose Yourself Era. Yes. And I was worried Both people bad. would say error. <laughs> yes, but also just not good, right? Like, yeah. uh, <laughs> neither of them is... Like, well, I, I was. People don't like to read books about 
Like, I like to read books about ideas. I read books about history. I, I read about anything because I like learning. But the vast majority of people don't do that. They want books to tell them what to do, right? The, there are people who don't read, and then they're like, I don't know what to do. Maybe a book will tell me what to do. So if you can come up with a book that says, here is the solution to your problem, it's obviously going to sell a lot better than a book that you know, sort of equivocates about what you should do or just says, like, here is a fact about the universe, figure right. it out. And so you know, the, I think the conversations we had, I don't remember whose idea ultimately was, but seizing with choose yourself, it's probably the single most important creative and marketing decision that you made because it's, it's you know, Instagram's original name was Bourbon, spelled B-U-R-B-N. Obviously, deciding to become Instagram was a much better idea and everything else they did pales in comparison to that as important as those other things were. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you what happened. So we were, we were talking titles, and I said, I don't quite like the Choose Yourself era, um, error, because I couldn't, I couldn't say error right. And so I was, I was thinking, and so, so Tucker Max suggested, what about pick yourself? And I was thinking, uh, I was worried about picking your nose, people would think. Yeah. And I, was, I started thinking, Choose Yourself. You had an idea for a title. I totally forget what your idea was. I don't, I don't remember this. So then what, what, what I did was I created Facebook ads for every idea we had for a title. And there was no landing page. I just had a small budget for, uh, I put up a, a small budget on Facebook for, I made an ad for each possible title. And then I just tracked which, you know, it, the ad was something like, get, pick yourself now, or get, choose yourself era now, or whatever. And um, uh, I just tracked the click-throughs and uh, choose yourself was like seventy percent. Pick yourself was like ten percent. You know, and then and so it was clear just from kind of uh, using Facebook ads to focus group that that was by far the best title. Well, and you were in a position where because you were self-publishing it as opposed to your other eleven books that you hadn't, where that was your call. So for me, like every one of my books has been a fight with the publisher about the title, and like one of my solutions. So my publisher wanted to, my book, The Obstacle is the Way, they wanted to just title The Way. And actually my US and my UK publisher were in complete agreement on this fact. So I actually got them both, I got The Obstacle is the Way and, and Ego is the Enemy tattooed on my arms. Just to end the, it's already, been, it's already been etched into my skin, there's no debate over this. And then there was some, should we call it The Ego is the Enemy? And it's like, nope, there's no the in the tattoo, this is done. Um, and that, that's the philosophy that, that won them over? Well, yes, yes. Ryan, There's no debate. They, they had this I can't undo meeting. the tattoo. <laughs> Ryan made it on his tattoo. We have to name it this. Exactly. No, they, so they were like, I remember there was an email, and, and my editor was like, you know, is it the, and we were going back and forth, or she was going back and forth, and then I just sent her a picture of the tattoo, and I didn't say anything else, and that was the end of the discussion. I remember last year I was asked to go speak at the Norway Business Summit, and I was so excited because side by side with the Business Summit was the Norway Chess Summit, where I would get to see in person Magnus Carlsen, the best chess player ever, playing chess. But it was four plane rides like to get to the city that ultimately I would go to. So I really did not want to fly for 14 hours, and they, they were willing to pay for everything for me. So... I, I at first class, so I didn't want to fly for 14 hours and not be first class. So I had to hurry up 
and get on the phone immediately to get those first class tickets to a chess tournament in Norway. And listen, this is just like when, you know, you have to know when you want the best of anything, you have to act quickly or someone else will get it instead. And I did not want those seats to fill up. So it's like if you're hiring for your business, you want to find the most talented people for your open roles before the competition scoops them up. I just was talking to a friend this morning where he was trying to decide between some programmers and he waited a little too long and both the programmers he was interviewing took other jobs, like great jobs. So you know, what's the best way then to hire the best as quickly as possible? ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter finds qualified candidates fast. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Just try it and see. You'll, you'll find out. So ZipRecruiter's powerful matching technology takes center stage to identify the top talent for your roles. Immediately after you post your job, ZipRecruiter's smart technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I know this because one time I signed up as an employee, potential employee on ZipRecruiter, and I got nonstop, really, I was, even though obviously I wasn't looking for a job, I love what I do, but I just wanted to see what would happen because they were a, a, a sponsor of my podcast. And the most interesting jobs would pop up in my emails like, hey, you're qualified for this or that. And so it's interesting to see. So just just go there and try it. Try ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Amp up your hiring performance. Now, this is more for if you're hiring, but amp up your hiring performance with ZipRecruiter and find the best fast. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address right now to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Save big money on everything for your spring projects at Menards. We have all of your garden and landscaping essentials. Master Garden Premium Garden Soil contains a slow-release fertilizer that feeds gardens for up to nine months. It produces better results and is ready to use for all your gardening needs. Save big on Menards' great selection of garden and landscaping products. Compare brands in-store or online at Menards.com. Save big money at You really, we were talking about this a little earlier, you really, like my advice, I gave you advice around 2012 or 2013, which was specifically bad advice that you ignored. And I said to you, look, you have so many skills in marketing and you seem to be in such demand for marketing. You could, you could stay in New York City, uh, create a little marketing agency, build it up for two or three years, sell it for $10 million. 
which is like a standard path for, for marketing agencies, particularly for someone with your background at that time and, and, and the demand you had and, and so on. And you, I, don't, I know that strategy would have worked. I'm sure you thought that strategy would have worked, but it didn't matter to you. You didn't give a shit. And you moved to Austin and just became a writer, which is what you wanted to do. But I did listen to you at first, and I did move here. And you were miserable. It, this is the worst city in America. I hate New York. I disagree, but... <laughs> No, it, it, it was like, first off, okay, so if pursuing this thing is going to potentially make me a bunch of money, and the first thing I'm going to do with that money is go move somewhere else, why not just skip straight to that step? You know what I mean? Like, it seems like, okay, so I have to live here for a number of years where I'm not happy, where everything is really expensive, and the weather sucks, and uh, still tons of traffic, like, all, all, all the things that I dislike about New York, uh, and then... Uh, so I would make a ton of money so then I could afford a place in Austin. I can already afford a place in Austin. Anyone can, right? It's Texas. And so I just moved there. Uh, and, and, and I decided that I would start a company, but the idea of the company wouldn't be, I'm going to go um, work on a bunch of things that I'm not proud of and, and work for a bunch of clients who I don't like to, again, make a lot of money to sell a company to someone to some bigger company, which I then have to work. Like the other interesting thing about so much of entrepreneurship is like people start their own company because they want to be their own boss. And then the exit strategy is you sell to another company, which you then have to go work at for an extended period of time. So the 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 success is that you end up doing the one thing that you specifically did not want to do. And so I just hated all of that. And so I I said well, why, not I, why don't I just start a company where I only work on things I like? Um, I'm not going to take on a ton of overhead or hire a bunch of people or, or, or just sort of... I, like, like, why should I get a lease on a building that costs me X amount per year and then I have to go out and get X number of clients to pay for that building? Why don't I just not have the building and then I'll only work on stuff that I want to do? And that's sort of what I've tried to build. And, and like, yeah, again, like if I had a company that had investors that had this thing... I couldn't buy a ghost town or I couldn't get up and move or you know, I couldn't do what I wanted. And so to me, the whole point, and obviously Tim Ferriss has written about this very compellingly, but the whole point of wealth and success is supposed to be independence and freedom. And ironically, so many of the things that we want to do don't give us those things. And then this goes to Seneca's idea. Well, what if it takes five years, five years and you'll sell this company for $10 million? But what if you die in year three? Like, your plan didn't fucking work. Right. So that was the idea. So you moved to Austin. Uh -huh. You started writing these incredible books like Obstacles the Way, Ego is the Enemy, Perennial Seller, Conspiracy, which was a new, a new direction for your writing. What's next on the writing? Uh, more books. More books. Trying to take more time. I mean, one of the things that I did basically a book a year for six or seven years, maybe even, actually the math is more than that. I've written eight books and my first book came out in 2012. So that's like a lot very quickly. And so I'm trying, uh, I think one of the other things that I've been thinking a lot about is sort of sustainability. Like how can, like, I don't want to be a writer for six years. I want to be a writer for 60 years. So how do I sort of take care of myself, sort of space things out, build a, how do, how do I build a, a more sort of sustainable, enduring career? So I've been trying to sort of slow down and think bigger and work smarter and that sort of thing. So what, what way, because it's very interesting because I feel like the, the media, obviously the media landscape has changed a lot, but it changes at a really fast pace now. Yeah. Like for instance, 
nobody really gets their start now as a blogger. Right. Like that phenomenon of blogger to book to success doesn't exist. And 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 it's starting to not exist even YouTube to media star or TV show that, that is starting to no longer exist. So media is turning like upside down in a weird way. Like like Tim Ferriss, Tucker, you, even me, we all kind of started off blogging and we don't do that. Or we, we do it, but it's, but here's what's interesting. Don't get to start that way anymore. But but now we don't blog. We write long form articles, oftentimes for like serious publications, which is how writing was done before blogging was invented. Mm-hmm. So I think at the end of the day, everything sort of regresses back towards a. It's like okay, the the new invention is sort of cord cutting, right? So everything's on streaming platforms, and what do you know? Shows are still about thirty minutes or an hour. And then they come in seasons. Like none of this needs to be this way, but we sort of revert back to some sort of common form in whatever we're doing. So, yeah. So YouTube is hot for a while, or Vine is hot for a while, or podcasts are hot for a while. And at the end of the day, the audience attention span is about the same, and people just want good shit. Period. And so I think people can often be too obsessed or focused on like what the hot thing is right now. Rather than focusing on like what's good and enduring, you know what I mean. So, so it's, but, but you just mentioned how like like last year was the first year you hadn't written a book. You'd written a book a year up until. I mean, I had a book come out last year, and then I had a book come out this year. So at the end of the day, people are still like books are books are the only remain. I, I think I saw this on Reddit today, so it could be totally made up. But books are the fastest, are the only sorry, the only growing physical medium, uh, or physical the only. Vertical, the physical product that's showing growth, right? So, like books, people still read books. I mean, if anything, we're living in a golden age of books. Not only do we have growth in the physical form, and now we have eBooks, which is a new category, but audiobooks are blowing up. So, right. what I'm what I'm thinking about more is like, how can I just continue to make really great stuff that people like, and then be somewhat medium agnostic, right? Like. Um, and and how can I own my relationship with the fans as much as possible? That's that's what I think about. I think about this a lot because, like last year for me, so I've been I've written a book a year since two thousand three, and uh, or sometimes more than one book in a year until twenty seventeen. So the first year I did not even write a book, let alone publish a book. And uh, happiest it, year of your life? Hmm? Happiest year of your life? Probably it's when yeah. I started doing more of this more obsessively, yeah. and I started doing a lot more podcasting and other things, and playing around with other media and learning other skills. But I don't know. What do you think? Uh, what do you think I should do? I, <laughs> you you I help mean, me with choose yourself now. Yeah, now it, help me out. I mean, five years later, I would be like, choose yourself, and then you've done a number of books since then. But choose yourself stands sort of head and shoulders above all the others. I think you spent the most time with it. It was the, the most sort of singularly unique idea. And the other books have, have sort of been not sequels, but sort of supplementary content. If I were you, I would think like, what's it? I would, I would be swinging for a home run. Like, what's a big, new, different idea that you could do? That's what I would be thinking so about. So it's, it's kind of like what you did with Conspiracy. So you've written these books that are very conceptual, like Obstacles the Way is about how, uh, you know, obstacles. Sure. Can be the way. Ego is the enemy. So how, you know, it's this concept about. By the way, ego. I, for people who are thinking about doing books, 
you want a book that is self-evident and simple, like choose yourself, what's that about? I don't know. Yeah, of course mm -hmm. you know what it's about, right? The obstacle is wait, you, you get it from the title and then everything else is confirmation of that idea. But when, when you can really nail something, like my books that have worked really well, nail that, my, my books that have worked okay, haven't nailed it as well. Well, it, the titles work when, if somebody says that phrase, I think of your book. Or they have the a phrase. strong opinion about, like, it's more like, do you, if I say, you should choose yourself, what is, you know, does someone have a strong reaction to that or not, good or bad? And if they don't, then it's probably not a super provocative idea. If, if, if you said, oh, I'm writing this book about how it's the choose yourself economy, they'd be like, okay. Yeah, boring. You know? <laughs> No, I agree. Yeah. So I choose yourself. Yeah. Or pick yourself. They'd be like, what? You know, that's weird, right? But when you really nail, so, so, so often the most important decision you make is just about turning it until you get that click. But in terms of like pivoting the, your writing approach uh, in, the, in the attempts that, uh, to hit the home run as opposed to kind of being a sequel-driven writer, uh, with Conspiracy, you really pivoted. You told a story. Yeah. That was your first book where you told a story from beginning to end. You were a storyteller. Yeah, and I wanted to just see if I could do it. Part of it was just you know, testing and trying, and now it's you know, the director of The Hunger Games is trying to turn it into a movie, so oh, wow. it, 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 it could be a sort of totally transformative thing. It was also a risk, right? Like if it, uh, if it, it was a risk, but not really a risk, right? Um, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, and I go back to what I'm doing, and if it does work, uh, it could totally change the direction of my life. So. I, I try, to me what gets me excited is like, is this something new that I haven't done before that I can get better by doing? That's sort of my test for whether I want to work on something. So, so without maybe revealing what your next writing project is, what's the way you're thinking about pivoting? Like how do you think about reinventing, you know, so writing's a, a craft you've developed over many years. How do you think in terms of what your next pivot is I don't like that word. Your yeah. next reinvention no, I get it. is. I, I, like, so I've done these books on stoicism, and, and that's sort of the philosophy I try to live my life by. It's what I'm really interested in, and it's clearly what has resonated with audiences. But like, now I'm thinking, like, how do I sort of, how do I expand that? How do I open up another channel, right? And so uh, the next book, which will be a sequel to Ego and Obstacle, is going to try to include or, or sort of make some larger theory about the commonalities between other philosophical schools. So again, it's about challenging me. It's like, okay, so I know a ton about Stoicism, but I know nothing about Buddhism or Confucianism or, um, or Hinduism or even Christianity. I'm an, an, I'm an atheist, so I'm not that interested in it, or I, I don't naturally know that much about it, but sort of can I, can I set down to master these other things the way that I've mastered this other philosophy and then can I come up with something unique or new or provocative about that? So that's what I'm going to try to do. Well, it's interesting because Stoicism, the way, like you've, everybody's heard about Stoicism, but you really popularized it. With They've heard books. of lowercase Stoicism, right? Like the idea of like Stoic meaning doesn't have any emotions, but they don't actually know anything about it, mm -hmm. right? And so that's what I tried to fix. But I, I feel like, um, you know, in, in Western culture, there's, of course, people who are religious Christians or Jews or whatever. And then there's a lot of people who move towards exploring Buddhism, Hinduism. But then there's a lot of people who are just 
agnostic and or atheist, however they label themselves, they don't want to lab, label themselves with a religion or a belief system. And it feels like I see a lot of these people, they still have some sort of hole that they need to fill. And, and a lot of them go towards, let's say, something like transcendental meditation, which could be bullshit or whatever. And, but I think stoicism is, an, is a good out for them to find a philosophy to live their life by without saying they're religious or believe in something mystical or whatever. Well, Viktor Frankl talked about this idea of like the existential vacuum, that this is like the fundamental problem of the 20th and the 21st century, which is that like religion has fallen away, your sort of small town familial unit has fallen away, and even like the old way of doing things is just, you don't have to do it that way anymore which is great on the one hand because a lot of these things were oppressive and restrictive um, and you know, based on nothing in many cases. Uh, but so you get rid of them, well now there's this huge question of like, how the fuck do you live your life? And like, what's important, what's not important, what's right or wrong? What is the basis for why it's right or wrong? So we have, in a weird way, we've got rid of these oppressive systems and then we haven't provided anything in return. And so, uh, in, in turn, so, so for people who sort of intuitively know what's right and wrong or how to live or what they want to do, they're fine. But then what about the other people? Well, they end up joining the alt-right or, you know, they commit suicide or they get depressed or, you know, they join a cult or, you know, like people need, we want, we have these big questions and, and we're desperate for some kind of answer. And to me, what's fascinating about Stoicism is that when it came uh, sort of of age, it was in this unique period where sort of the old sort of Greek and Roman system of like uh, polytheism, like all, all these different gods that were playing this active role in your life and you had to sacrifice to, all that was sort of going away. We were graduating away from that, but then Christianity hadn't really replaced it yet. Like Seneca and Jesus were born in the same year and they were alive at the same time. So again, not to offend Christian people, but like to me, when I read Seneca's writing and he's like a successful, wealthy, ordinary person who's dealing with loss and grief and ambition and all these normal things, and he has, he's writing letters to his friends of like, here's a good idea and here's a good idea. I like that more than the third hand accounts of some mystical guy who went around and you know turned water into wine and, you know, loaves and fishes, like, you know what I mean? Like when you read the Bible as a historical document, you're like, this is kind of ridiculous, right? And then you read Seneca and you're like, I know that guy. And so I think that's why Stoicism has resonated so much. But now though, you, you, because you're in your own personal reinvention, you, wanna, you don't want to write just a third or fourth book about Stoicism, you, you want to take the next yeah, well, I just want to make it bigger and more inclusive and I want to draw on wisdom wherever it's... That's not to say there's not sort of beautiful pieces of advice or insights in Christianity or in Hinduism or, or Zen Buddhism or whatever, and I want to incorporate them all into some sort of larger thesis about you know, how we make our way through this crazy, fucked-up world. Next time on The James Altucher Show... Part of it was I've always had this sort of deep compulsion to like work, work, work. And actually, ironically, I'm now working on sort of not being that. And so in some ways, oftentimes, whatever our main strength is can also be a profound weakness for us, right? So for me, that sort of intensity can be a problem. For, for Donald Trump, his main strength is shamelessness, right? That's his main strength. Like, 
to get up. So in the second debate, like five days before the debate, the, the, the Access Hollywood tape leaks, right? You or I, if someone, let's say you had said that horrible shit and then you got caught and the whole world knew about it, I would probably kill myself, right? I would, I would cry. Yeah, I would, I would cry and then I would probably kill myself and then I would obviously drop out of the presidential race and then never be seen from publicly again if I didn't kill myself. Donald Trump got up in front of like 70 million people or however many people watched the debate and he was like, oh yeah, it's locker room talk. Like he, his strength was that he could say that with a straight face, right? Like that he could say complete and utter bullshit in front of millions of people when he should have been churning with self-loathing and embarrassment and humiliation. That's his main strength, right? Every day Donald Trump wakes up and he has to be Donald Trump and he continues to wake up, right? Like that's really, that, that's, that's, I couldn't do that's that. That's a funny bit. I couldn't do that. I would definitely, again, definitely kill myself if, <laughs> if I traded places with it. Like, like how many nights could you walk around the White House in a bathrobe, your wife living hundreds of miles away and you're like texting Sean Hannity for validation. You know what I mean? That's like the worst life I could possibly imagine. So he does that. So, but again, this is also his profound weakness and why he's always in trouble. And it, people are like, why can't he just be president and not tweet? Well, because if you're a shameless person, the person who can get up on stage and, and describe that tape as locker room talk is the person who doesn't get that calling a black woman on Twitter a dog is a bad idea, right? Like, so often, again, the long way of saying, often our strengths are our weaknesses. And so like for you, I, if I was like, what's James? You have this compulsive, you can't not be in front of an audience, right? Like you have to be writing, podcasting, and Here. then and then when I when I heard you were doing comedy, I was like, oh yeah, sure. James isn't writing for millions of people. He has to get in front of a room of fifty people every night for ten dollars. Like that's James, right? And ten dollars that that would be a lot compared to try try negative hundred thousand dollars. <laughs>